Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chaney. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston, and today I'm joined by my friend Khadija Adams. Khadija Garrison Adams is a proud native New Orleanian turned proud Central Ohioan. Conceding to the demand for her sought-after sweet potato chocolate chip cookies, the home-based baker launched these cookies in 2020 to spread comfort and joy during these uncertain times. A former chaplain, this writer, social justice influencer, and breastfeeding advocate thinks the stories we tell about our food and the places from which it comes are as important as the food itself. Khadija, her husband, three children, and their very affectionate Rottweiler live on an unexpectedly bucolic tract of land in Columbus, Ohio. Before we jump into today's interview, I want to remind you that if you're enjoying the podcast, you can support us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast, and sincerely, any amount helps. We're working now on some gifts for our patrons, so stay tuned for that. Also want to remind you that I'm teaching an adult education course called The Color of Food about food and race in this country. You can find more info about that at foodandfaith.org. Okay, let's listen to my conversation with Khadija. All right, we are here with Khadija Adams. Khadija, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I'm we had a to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we could find the time. So we like to begin our interviews with this question of what is your geography? And by that, we mean what are the places, people, land, music, culture, food that have shaped you to oh. who you are today? Man, that is, um, that's, that's rich for me, but I, I think I can try to quickly hit them all. So I am New Orleans born and raised. 504 forever. So much so forever that my cell phone's area code is still 504. <laughs> even though AT&T has assured my husband that we could save a whole bunch of money if we, I would just, you know, switch to my current locale. Um, he literally laughed in the lady's face and was like, yeah, I mean, thanks. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. She already had to turn in her driver's license. No way else. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I left New Orleans for college. I moved just north of Columbus, Ohio, uh, to go to Ohio Wesleyan University. And um, at the time, it, it was even more north than it was. I mean, it was like cornfields between there and Columbus. So it was really the country at the time. After college, I moved to Pittsburgh um, and worked with middle, high school, and college students. So high school and college students at a tiny Presbyterian church on the west side of Pittsburgh and uh, the community college of Pittsburgh's main campus. Uh, then I transitioned to the actual city of Columbus, working at a small Catholic university. Did that for five years. And then there came someone who knew not Joseph. Uh, so I transitioned out of that place <laughs> and I attempt for a while doing the kind of wild and crazy temp jobs that nobody wants to do. <laughs> And then I became a real government employee, uh, first answering the phones at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles headquarters. Like I was literally that person who you call <laughs> and yell at about your vehicle registration. Uh, it's really good to have a ministry background if you have to be that person. Um, I was great at de-escalating. <laughs> And again, because of my ministry background, I was really good at interpreting the law. So I got a promotion mm -hmm. and then I literally analyzed and wrote really important pieces of paper that nobody read yeah. and uh, then helped to make the things happen that they passed, despite what I kindly told them they should or should not do. Um, so that's that's me work for my current life in a nutshell um food right I'm from New Orleans I I like food we are the kind of people who talk about the next thing we're going to eat while we're at the current meal <laughs> uh, we talk about meals we've had that are better or worse than the one we're currently mm. having um I like to keep around myself a steady crew of people who are in love with food in the way that I am uh so that we can import things I literally when I was pregnant with my first child received a gift from a friend that was crab cakes from GNM uh, in Baltimore uh, like they they mailed me some crab cakes that's a good friend yes <laughs> friend um so I am uh, my answer to food is yes, with the exception, tragically, of pineapples that try to kill me, which 
it's very lame and they have not always. It happened in my 20s. Oh, wow. Um, and slacks and chia, which means I can't really get all that much into things that are profoundly healthy, at least in their marketing, because they they usually have one of those three things in them. True. I lucked into marrying a person who loves food in the same truly madly deeply way that I do. And we live on an acre of land in the middle of the city. So mm. in the years when we can convince ourselves that the animals who live there with us are not going to eat all the things we plant. We also have a nice little garden there. Um, music. Ooh, music is hard for me. Um, I am, and Derek, I have a feeling this is something we, we likely have in common. I have grown up and come of age in a, a place where I'm often fish out of water. Mm -hmm. I am a happy Black woman. I am happy in my skin. Um, my husband is ethnically biracial, and we joke that he is ethnically biracial and I am culturally biracial. <laughs> um, so I cried when Dolores from the Cranberries died. I played uh, the Radiohead Hail to the Thief album, I think until I broke that CD. It was a tough time. <laughs> it, really, it really ministered to me. <laughs> um, but I also grew up listening to both Black gospel music and CCM. So yay Fred Hammond and yay Friends Are Friends Forever. Um, one of my deepest regrets in life is I got, I was a Roots like super fan in the early aughts and I got invited via email to this random concert that was happening that the Roots were doing with some friends and I made some excuse to not go. It was like my birthday weekend or something. Mm. Well, in hindsight, I realized that that concert was actually the like Dave Chappelle, like, the yeah, it was the oh wow. I was invited to the concert. Oh wow. That that hurts. Me still. That hurts. <laughs> like I, I hurt for you. I'm so sorry. Wow. <laughs> we I mean I, I see the roots annually and and, and <laughs> I, I do because they're always they're always in Nearby. they're always in Baltimore or DC and so I I, I see them annually. Um, but man, to miss that, man. oof, man. ouch. Man. So yeah, and everything in between. Patty Griffin. I mean, I listen to enough YouTube for my Christian white friends to not that I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I've sufficiently sufficiently answered the question. Probably. No, I think you've done a fantastic job answering the question. So we uh, we're we're in the middle of this book project, thinking about what does it mean to have a just kitchen. So we've been asking folks, can you describe your kitchen growing up, the kitchen that you grew up in, and the, the house where you grew up? Who was cooking? Who was doing the cooking? Um, what are like? foods or smells or thoughts or memories that are evoked when you think of your kitchen growing up? Oh, that is a good question. So I grew up I like formative households sort of transition. So when I was very small, we lived in a double and my paternal grandmother lived next to us. Um, she was not much of a savory cook, but she was, she made all our birthday cakes <laughs> And um, she had a real love for Sanka coffee. <laughs> so one of my earliest beverage memories is of drinking Sanka with my grandmother, which should be embarrassing, but it's not. And to this day, the smell of Sanka is like total nostalgia for me. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably my earliest food smell memory. Mm. Um, my, we transitioned from there. Um, my family actually moved in with my mother's great aunt. Um, she invited, she was a widow with no children and she invited my parents to move in with her, with myself and my brother, who was an infant at the time, um, really to help her transition. She said, I'm dying and I've hit the point where I can no longer care for myself and I need care. If you all will move in with me when I die, you can have the house. Oh, wow. Which is um, both a tall order and an amazing gift. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did. 
Um, and my mother comes from a family of really great cooks. Our father was originally from Cincinnati. He actually met my grandmother, side note, literally walking down the street while he was on furlough in the Navy, like visiting New Orleans and was like, mm, you're great. I'm coming back for you. <laughs> and he did. He that. did. That's and great. more than a dozen children later, they were still together. Wow. Uh, but he became he became a cook in in New Orleans, a chef. Um, so I inherited a deep love of cooking from my family, from chitlins, which praise God never actually got cooked in my house. Those were grandparent <laughs> foods. Um, to smothered chicken, to the multi day affair that is gumbo. Children are initiated into the realm of cooking in New Orleans by getting to do the unpleasant things like peeling shrimp. Mm. You need a lot of shrimp for gumbo because gumbo is labor intensive. You make it ironically because it's labor intensive. You make a bunch of it at one time, which mm -hmm. actually makes it even more labor. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so if there are 10 pounds of shrimp to be peeled, the children do that and get mm -hmm. all the little micro cuts on their on their fingers. I remember when I was old enough to be able to make the roux. We make a dry roux in our family. Um, and that means standing over a cast iron skillet full of flour and stirring while a woman comes and occasionally checks on you. And so you feel like your arms are going to fall off. And until that flower is- A random color, woman? Well, it, it, it is not, it's usually like, if, you, if you've hit the point where you get to learn how to bake a roux, it is usually happening in a house of people. Okay. Um, and it's not even like, oh, we've gathered so that you can make a roux. <laughs> it's more like, this is an event. Like, okay. Okay. people know this is going to be happening. Interesting. Someone is around. We are joking about the fact that you are entering the realm of like cook <laughs> for real. Um, and I have really, really fond memories of random things that my dad would cook or like the love for food and foodstuffs that he had. So his father was from South Central Louisiana. Um, I imagine most of your listeners will not be familiar with places like Morgan City or Berwick. You are more most likely to hear the name Morgan City on the on the news because there's a hurricane headed directly to it. Gotcha. Like it sits in just the wrong spot in Louisiana. Mm. It's like the hurricanes like it there. Um, but it's cane country. So he would visit his relatives there and like collect pieces of sugar cane that had kind of fallen off trucks off the side of the road and bring them home. So <laughs> I can literally remember him like cutting cane with a machete at the kitchen table. Um down to the good part mm. in the middle and just like chewing cane at the table or mm. flounder that he had stuffed himself um, or like fresh nuance. Louisiana has great Creole tomatoes, like eating mm. tomatoes with salt and vinegar on them mm. or eating beets in much the same way, vinegar and pepper. So everything from the profoundly uh, labor intensive things to like just really simple, good food stuffs. Mm. So what of, what of that has translated into your kitchen now? What of that have I carried with me? Well, one, I work hard to engage my children in the act of food as I'm able, as I have the bandwidth, and as they are interested. Um, so today our five-year-old was very interested in washing dishes. Well, she can't wash everything. Yep. And she broke two things <laughs> in the process. <laughs> um, but I opted to put just enough water in the sink for her to be able to kind of navigate herself. I pulled out the step stool, which our step stool is always handy. Um, this is recorded and you are, will not be able to see how tall I am, but the answer is not very. I'm a very small person. So I keep a step stool handy both in our kitchen at home and in the commercial kitchen I bake out of. But they are, it makes me excited to give them permission to be creative. Mm. Uh, we have this 
we had this really fun moment when our oldest was maybe four, where she kind of told me that we were going to make rainbow cupcakes together. This hilariously was before I had a career in baking. Um, I've always loved baking, um, but it, it was long before I was doing it for a living. Um, and she told me that we needed to go and get the things from the store. And I asked if she knew what the things were and she listed the things. Wow. And she asked for a specific day and time. And I said, well, you have set the table before me and it seems like there is not a no to, to give to you right now. So this is going to happen. That's impressive. Okay. We are, we are going to do this thing. And it was fun and they were weird. (laughs) 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 But she had a great time. And that way I feel like we are learning to give them both some agency and also working really hard. We we do follow the old black rule of like, you have to eat what is set before you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to meet them in the middle sometimes and hit them with the no thank you bite. You must mm-hmm. must try three of these. Um, but they're, they're pretty adventurous eaters themselves. They like Brussels sprouts. Mm. They love cucumbers. Uh, they like Indian food. Wow. Um, but praise God, their favorite food is gumbo. Well, uh, it's a tie between gumbo and red beans. And both both ways you go, you, you have pleased your mother. So. I was about to say, you're, you're doing something right. Uh, and this is despite <laughs> their lack of affinity for spice. We we joke that they, and I, I'm going to assume your politics for a moment here, but we joke that they have Republican palates. <laughs> and... <laughs> They're not really fans of things like pepperoni. They said it's too spicy. <laughs> but uh, okay. But other spice <laughs> profiles seem to work really well for them. Hmm. Uh, I think in that way, we've also carried on our own family's legacy of creating a table that is welcoming. Hmm. So pre-COVID, it is normative for there to be an additional person or people at our table. Mm. We are usually the holiday house where the strays are coming. You you didn't go home. You couldn't go home. You refused to go home. There is no home to go to. You are likely at the Adams table, mm. um, which is definitely something from the desire to like feed people to the desire to like create fellowship that is around food. Like that's definitely something I get from my family. Mm, I love that. I love that. So you, you've mentioned a couple of times now that you are now professionally baking. Uh, tell me about the origin of, of these cookies and, and how you like, what was, what, what made what you go from what made you go from cooking in your house to to cooking for for making cookies for everyone? Uh, well, speaking of politics, <laughs> funny enough, I'm not, um, so I have been baking cookies specifically since I was in campus ministry. I actually okay. started baking cookies because I figured out middle and high school girls really liked to bake cookies and by like bake cookies what I really mean is like they really liked to have flower fights in my apartment Um, (laughs) but in this process I learned that I really like to bake cookies Mm. and I did not grow up baking from scratch funny thing about New Orleans like it is completely a food city um, but it is not really a home dessert city um We have amazing bakeries. And I think the world knows about things like beignets, but like Mm -hmm. great donuts. Mm -hmm. We have Mm -hmm. this cake called a dobege cake that comes in lemon and caramel and chocolate. But like it's white, it's yellow cake sliced in these like micro layers with this beautiful like ganache slash buttercream. But it's like 20 layers of Mm. cake with this like poured icing over it it's it's majestic um sounds great it is it is great um there are there are very few things that are home dessert so okay uh, pralines which most like super local local black people don't actually call that we call them pralines or pecan candy we're sort of a pound cake place not that much things like ooey gooey cake which is something we have in common with st louis um but like yeah i did not grow up baking from scratch i grew up baking wax cakes for fun okay. 
but I fell in love with baking in that process. When I was working and living in Pittsburgh, I received some pumpkin chocolate chip cookies from a friend, clearly a white friend. And I thought that they were good. And I also thought this can be improved upon. And uh, the best way to improve upon pumpkin is by trading it out for sweet potato. So I uh, made some sweet potato chocolate chip cookies and they were delicious. And I started making those every fall for friends. Mm. Um, I carried that on through my transition to Columbus. I would bring them to gatherings and the tray would disappear. And by disappear, I literally mean like factions would form and people would like steal the tray away. (laughs) So like now the tray is in the corner in an unnamed room. And people are just coming back with a uh, cookie. Well, where'd you get that from? So and so gave it to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so in the year of the 2020 presidential election, the day after the election, I had taken the day off from work. And I took the day off in case you know the world ended. And 2020 or 2016? 2020. 2016, okay. I actually had a baby two days after the election. Oh, so I okay. I went off the grid for everything. Okay. <laughs> uh, but 2020, you know, we were we were worried that the world was going to mm-hmm. continue to go down in flames. Sure. Um, so I started getting phone calls from friends like, hey, can you just get in the kitchen and make that cookie? We need some comfort. We do not know what is happening right now. We want to eat our feelings. We will pay you. Make the cookie. Um, and I said, well, you know, one phone call is an upset friend. Two phone calls is, is a command. So, okay, I'll buy an LLC since you can buy one on the internet. So you can legally send me money and I'll bake until they call the election. Mm. Well, it took them a while to call the election. So I think I baked 30 dozen cookies by the time they called it. And at that point I was like, hmm. I might have something here. Wow. Well, we'll bake through Thanksgiving. Let's let's say Thanksgiving. And I added like a carrot cake cookie in there because I made I, carrot cake was something that we loved in our house and that I, I made really well. So I was like, well, I feel like that would translate well into a cookie. I, had, I baked through the holidays, added some fun things like turtle cookies, just whatever came to mind. And then when Georgia took the Senate, I decided to do an inauguration box. Uh, 12 flavors that were themed um, in flavor, not in design, around the event of the election. So I designed one for Georgia called Georgia on My Mind. It's like an oat crisp base, but it's toasted candy pecans. Pecans are like, Georgia is one of the number one places in the country for like the growth of pecans and a peach jam that I make from scratch in the middle. Um, And I was getting the pecans from Quinnia Farm down in Georgia, which uh, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, is in a place called Americas. uh, And it is actually where Habitat for Humanity was born. Mm. Um, But it is one of the oldest like interracial Christian communities Mm. in the country. And one of the things they do to sustain themselves is grow really amazing things like a variety of kinds of nuts had like a chai snickerdoodle and we did it joe mocha bar Um, (laughs) lots of like whimsy and significance but like it was super fun and the next month i said okay i mean we're really we're making cookies now so i did black history month and that that allowed some fun like food and culture oriented things like I did one for George Washington Carver that was sweet potato with honey roasted peanuts on it because we know him for peanuts but like mm-hmm. he was also huge for the industry of sweet potatoes yes I did one for Fannie Lou Hamer because though we know her for politics she was actually a huge food justice advocate mm-hmm. And like she started this farm um, in a place called Sunflower County, Mississippi. And they had a pig bank on the farm that like we can think of all manner of, I feel like this is commonplace now, these cooperative farming kind of opportunities, Um, but it wasn't then. And like people could get a share of the pig. And it was one of the ways to help sharecroppers like 
become independent from the industry of sharecropping. So it was an oatmeal cookie, but with sunflower seeds in it and maple glazed uh, bacon on top. That's brilliant. Yeah, it was delicious, but also you're learning something. That's brilliant. We did Mardi Gras, we did Pose, we did Prince's Birthday. Hey, that's another one of our music things. (laughs) <laughs> we did uh, one for Stevie Wonder's Hotter Than July album. Um, and somewhere somewhere around the George Floyd verdict, I decided to quit my day job. Mm. It, it had been a job that didn't make me happy, but did pay bills mm-hmm. for a long time. And I think COVID plus a third child plus a pretty decent run with postpartum depression um, really equaled that the job was not, it wasn't, it wasn't just not a good fit anymore. It was becoming untenable. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it was that day I had mental permission for myself to walk away from that. And I was really thrilled to have something to walk to as I was walking away. Mm -hmm. Um, and in this way, like I am a nerd that, that at this point in our conversation is no real surprise. Um, but I was also in that season having some really significant writer's block. I am, um, I get my writing into the world through blogging and I was having particular trouble with like executive function for anything except cookies. Mm-hmm. So I might not have been able to remember whether or not I had brushed my teeth, but I could think of a cookie flavor. Um, So I think it began as as much coping as it was creativity. And it has really shown itself in the long haul as being ministry that fits me in this season of my life. So cookies have become a really accessible way to tell good stories and build bridges. Um, So my Hispanic History Month box was all Afro-Latino people. And I picked four people from four different countries and tried for the most part, with the exception of Celia Cruz, to pick people who folks had not necessarily heard of. and to then do fun things. So we did St. Martin de Porres, who's the first black saint from the Americas, but he's Peruvian. And if you're like me, unless you'd watch the like black and Latin America series by Skip Gates, you likely didn't realize that there were black people in Peru at all, Mm. let alone like the guy, the first guy. Um, I did one on the first black president of Mexico. And he will forgive my still going away baby brain. I can't actually remember what the fourth one was right now. All right. Um, but but they're, they, they have kind of all been like that. But they have also given me an opportunity to really lean into like, I am telling a story and living out my values in every aspect of cookie making. So there was a cookie in my Black History Month box last year that we called To the Revolution, which was a play on the Hamilton lyric, but the cookie was an all-Black cookie. So it's made with brown eggs, brown sugar, um, Uncle Nearest whiskey, and then chocolate made by two Black female chocolatiers. So one who sources her chocolate out of Ghana and one who is Haitian by ethnicity but lives in New York, And she sources her chocolate through um, Haitian female farmers. And it was just, it felt really good to say like, we're gonna, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do this in a way that makes sense for what these things are and what they're about. We did like a milk and honey cookie in our Women's History Month box last year. I sourced the honey from like a tiny female owned farm, like just north of here. We're using kind of the best quality and like just as centered products we can find or afford. Um, right. I'm a baby business, so I can't always afford to not buy things from Bezos. Sure. Sorry. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's the reality. And, I mean, that's real. And we, we don't have to pretend like it's not real. It's, that's real. It's the truth. He's a 
reason. Um, but I have gotten to do things that were fun. But I've also gotten to like bless other businesses in that journey. So I did a cafe au lait cookie in my, my Mardi Gras box, but I found a person, a black person who's originally from New Orleans, who was producing coffee and chicory. And mm. we used that coffee and chicory and I just ground it down like fine enough to be like espresso in the cookie. Um, I've started partnering with um, a business that's owned by a gay married couple. Um, the one husband is white, the other is Vietnamese, but they highlight Vietnamese coffees and teas. Mm. Um, Funny enough, I have not actually technically put any of their coffee or tea in a cookie, but we do, we do a curated box together. So it's like a limited run box. Of like there are 12 available because I will only make one dozen of each flavor. Mm -hmm. But he gives me uh, teas or coffees and flavor notes for those. And then we develop a cookie to pair with each one of those. I have a Haitian American former college student who does spices kind of on the side and I've given her like formulations. This is, I can make it myself. Like I'm capable of purchasing these spices and making this blend myself, but I would like to be able to send business your way. So here's, here's the formula. Please make this. You can attach my name to it. I don't want any money from you and I'll buy it. So I am making a living and like blessing my community. Mm. Yeah. You've said about a dozen amazingly wonderful <laughs> things, but I, I want to, I want to try and isolate a couple of them. One is food as education. You're using food to not just tell stories, but to like, to teach people to like, like give people information that they didn't have. I absolutely love that. I absolutely love, I absolutely love the, I, and I, I think it's a, I think it's a thing that we haven't, we haven't talked about a lot is the idea that you can, you can put a cookie in front of someone and say, okay, here's where this is sourced. And here's why I used these ingredients and here's the person that this represents to me and tell a story and teach a lesson. And that's an incredible, that's a great way to learn. Like, to, to, like have a cookie in your mouth while you're also learning. Hey, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I, I, I love, so I love that. The other piece is just the enormous amount of creativity that you're showing. Thank you. I mean, like this is this is I, I mean, do you in your thinking about this? I mean, do you think about it as this is my art? This is this is my creative outlet. I mean, I have finally come to think of it in that way. And it took me a while. Mm -hmm. um, it might have been I was at least six months in and like I was preparing to quit my job already by the time mm -hmm. I got to the like, mm, this is art. And I think part of that is really like, I do think of writing as art, but in that way, mostly as like, yeah, this is technically in the realm of creative arts. Right. Um, but I can't like draw my way out of a paper bag. Um, like my children ask me to help them with their little drawings. And I'm like, it's, it's going to be just as good as you do. If you do it yourself, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, but this is deeply ironic because my brother is a visual artist, mm. um, like literally a painter professionally. <laughs> uh, but, but my joke has been always that like, he got all the creativity, <laughs> like, mm. Pretty good singer. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but that, that I felt like was really the only thing in the creative realm I brought to the table. I'm a, t a notoriously terrible dresser. Um, my uh, best friend was in charge of picking my clothes if I needed to look presentable before I married. Um, and my husband is in charge of picking my clothes now. Um, <laughs> I am not, it is not my ministry. I, I buck all the gender norms in that realm. But <laughs> I have learned through cookies that I am a creative. And that has been an unexpected gift. Mm. Yeah. 
because I'm 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 hearing I'm hearing a lot of things that I don't think many people would put together in terms of both the combination of flavors and then the combination of flavors and story, the combination of, 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 of history and sourcing. I I mean, it's, to me, it feels, it feels like an incredible creative endeavor. I, I, I love hearing about it. That's, that's really fantastic. Listeners, I'm going to take Zoom privilege right now. I'm so sorry you can't actually see us and won't be able to see this. Um, but I, I want to show Derek the thing I'm working on right now. I'm actually talking from the commercial kitchen. And these little humble, unassuming looking circles are my barbecue shortbread, which might be the most fun creative thing I've gotten to do in a while. Huh. So my women's history month box is um, shout out to Captain Planet slash Gaia. It is earth, fire, wind, and heart. I skipped water because blue cookies are hard. Um, but my my fire cookie is actually uh, named for a black female pitmaster in rural Tennessee. Her name is Helen Turner, mm. uh, and she uses hickory and oak wood like not charcoal she is literally like tending fire making sides pulling meat working the front counter this lady is incredible <laughs> but the shortbread literally has like a dry rub that i designed mm. um some tomato powder some oak based syrup and like oak smoke and hickory smoke syrup so like it tastes like barbecue like Wow. Almost, almost like a good barbecue potato chip. Like mm. in the weirdest <laughs> way, like potato chip meets bread. So it's delicious, but it's also like the most bizarre experience. I'm about to say, like I'm 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 even having a hard time like conjuring up that 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 taste, that flavor. And it just makes me want to try it. So I keep that. a really great group of like nerd foodie friends who we invite over when I'm workshopping to give me like tasting notes, tell me what's working, tell me what isn't. And when I told them I was going to do this one, even they were like, are you, are you sure, D? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if we want to try that though. Mm. But they've changed their mind since. They love it. They love it. <laughs> There's a lot we could talk about with this because it's super fascinating. But I, I do want to talk about something else that you're involved in, which is another piece of food that we really don't think about. Um, you're part of the Black Lactation Center. And I'm just kind of interested in what uh, I imagine there had to have been some personal connection for you to get started in that work so um tell us a little bit about what happens at the black lactation center and and how you got involved there absolutely so i had our first child in the fall of 2014 and thank god for facebook like uh, my a phrase i'm known for these days is breastfeeding is natural but it does not come naturally Mm. um and i was pretty prideful going into my first breastfeeding experience like Sure, we had taken the little hospital class, but I really thought like, have boob, have baby, you're going to feed it. That's just going to be that. And um, my family uh, language really echoed that. So my mother was a person who was a breastfeeding advocate in the 80s back when that was profoundly unpopular. She would like stop you in the mall if you were pregnant. Oh, you're so beautiful. Are you going to breastfeed the baby? You know, it's the best thing for the baby. So awkward. (laughs) (laughs) But she was one of 16 children and her mother had not nursed 15 out of 16 of them because she really like birthed her children in the age when women were taught, particularly black women, that their milk was not the best thing for their baby. Mm. Um, and were literally given medication to like dry their milk up. My mom worked um, in a family planning clinic. So she had really caught the like message that it was best, but she had not caught the message that it didn't have to hurt. 
So with my first, um, I nursed often through tears and bleeding nipples, uh, so on and so forth. It eventually got better, but I joined some like online Facebook support groups uh, to get some help and they were really helpful. They were also humongous. It was like 30,000 people. Mm in these groups. Um, And I connected with a woman who I had known kind of pre-marriage, pre-children, who was also in the group and had a baby around the same time. She was saying, I really like to get some folks together. Around the same time, a new woman in town kind of popped in saying something similar. And I am a connector by nature. Um, I, I bring people together. Um, So I suggested that we all get together. I knew of two more friends who were also kind of in that season. And the five of us got together in someone's living room. It was fun. So we said we should do it again. Somebody made a landing page on Facebook. And I think there were 45 of us within about a week or so. Today, there are more than 900 women in the group. Wow. Uh, pre-COVID, we met in person once a month and literally like did everything from kind of troubleshooting little nursing to helping women access mental health care to deal with their postpartum depression, uh, depression and anxiety to bringing in a sex therapist to talk about what their sex life could be like after baby um, to postpartum shedding to literal access to resources to, I think we're up to four women now who we've caught their postpartum preeclampsia before their doctor has, and therefore we've saved their lives. That's amazing. Their doctor has said, this headache you have that won't go away on a Friday evening can wait until Monday for you to come in. It absolutely cannot wait, and you need to go to the emergency room right now. So you don't have a stroke. Yeah. Um, like one of those women ended up in the ICU. She made it. But in that way, we have become, and Columbus is a really like transient city. Um, there mm-hmm. are Black natives here, but there are lots and lots of people who have made their home here, who thought they were only going to be in town for a couple of years, working kind of mid-level and have ended up here for the long haul, but really don't have family or communities of their own. and breastfeeding at this stage, particularly in the life of our country and our people group, is something we have lost communal knowledge of already. So Mm. even who are near their families might not have families who can give them knowledgeable insight. Um, But folks who are not near their families are at double disadvantage, regardless of their socioeconomic status. So we have moms in the group who have nannies, and we have moms in the group who are living in shelter currently. Our goal is to help them successfully feed their baby breast milk via breast or bottle for as long as they are interested in doing so. Um, And we have had an incredible number of women who have gone from being able to nurse their first child only up to, say, six weeks, which is usually around the time they go back to work. So even things like troubleshooting what rights they are entitled to on the job regarding pumping, um, two with their second child coming to us saying, hey, the kid is two and a half and I can't figure out how to get her off the boob. Can you help me to wean? So that we have this really cool prayer. I wish I could remember uh, the author's name, but it's called like a prayer for the end of nursing. Mm. Uh, and it is just really kind of uh, a chronicle of the woes, but also like a message of deep, gratitude for like what their bodies have been able to do Um, and the ways they've not just been able to bless their kid but to bless themselves like your triglycerides go down you have less of a lifetime risk of type 2 diabetes of ovarian cancer of breast cancer like when I think of the ways that the women before us were robbed in their own bodies of the gift of breastfeeding. I am, I am grieved, uh, but I am really overjoyed to be a part of a community um, that is helping to reclaim those blessings for women. Like their bodies were made to be able to do this. There is 
a gift in them being able to do this. It is a sacrifice for sure, but it's it's a sacrifice that we can make. Yeah. 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 I don't want to draw an artificial line here, so please correct me if I'm doing so. But we have such a, in our modern culture, we have such a disconnect where food comes from. Yeah. Like we don't, we don't know, uh, we don't know, we don't know farming. We don't know farms. We don't know animal raising. We don't know butchers. We don't know, you know, and, and everything, our whole mindset about where food comes from is it comes from the store. And, and there's lots of people out there who are working really hard to help people regain that ancestral knowledge, to get seeds in the ground, to raise animals. And there's, there's this back to the land movement that's kind of happening. It's interesting to me, it seems that there's that similar disconnect in terms of lactation, in terms of, of that we've actually lost something that is that that feels really elemental and and i would imagine that there's got to be some shame involved in feeling like how can how come i can't do this thing that's very natural um and it sounds like what your group is trying to do is is say you know there's been lots of natural wisdom lost and we want to kind of help you reclaim that natural wisdom. I mean, is, is that the, is that connection? Is that, is that That's off at all? hundred percent, hundred percent. We're not making that up at all. Um, NPR had this really interesting story a couple of years back about, um, I believe and forgive me in advance. If it's wrong, go look it up. I believe it was Ghana. Um, but some, some, I believe West African country where, um, they were talking about the fact that women there also had a really difficult time with the initiation of breastfeeding. But breastfeeding rates there were much higher and people were much more likely to be successful. But it was because people were very likely to be living in multi-generational homes and neighborhoods mm. so that when they gave birth, their mother and their grandmother and their aunts and their older cousins were all nearby and their only job was to feed the baby. And there was a house full of women around who could correct the latch because they knew what it was supposed to look like, who could cook while she took a nap, who could hold the baby to the boob while she was sleeping. There was a literal built-in community of lactation support. Mm. We don't have that, and therefore... It's hard. And it's not just hard for Black women. It's hard for everybody. But Black women have a tendency to have more barriers to getting the resources that they need. They also have a tendency to have more encounters with shame in the opposite direction. Um, So if they are able to successfully nurse up to the point of, say, six months, there begins to be a community of people around them who are consistently asking when they are going to stop. Um, this idea that there is a point at which breastfeeding is not just no longer um, fruitful, but is no longer natural, that there's something Mm -hmm. wrong or nasty or sinister about the womanly art of breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can be, it can be a different kind of challenge. Some of those issues we would tie directly back to the trauma of slavery, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not all that. It is... Right. My ministry is milk and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. You just you just titled the show for me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I am I am running up against the the time and yeah. Oh, this has gone this has gone so quickly, and I want to keep talking to you. Um, but I do. Let me let me ask you uh, the last couple of questions. Um, we ask all of our guests, um, looking at all, considering all the things that are going on in the world today, what gives you hope? Um, not a hope that ignores the situations that are around us, but hope that kind of gives you the ability to face them with courage and with, with resilience. This is such an irony, but the internet, um, as many like dumpster fires as there are on there, I sort of have a really vibrant community of like, Facebook friends. I've lived in a lot of places and I've lived a lot of lives. And therefore my, my, my own community is widely varied and I get to watch them listen with vulnerability. And as much as I hear people all the time saying like, no one changes their mind because of something they saw on the internet. 
I've actually watched a lot of people change their mind because of something they mm. saw on the internet. And it has it has convinced me that it's possible that access to information can can change things for the better. Mm. That's actually really nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. <laughs> that 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 segues um into the last thing, which is please plug all of the things, all of the ways on the internet that people can reach you and and have access to um, your cookies and all the other wonderful work that you're doing. Okay, well, we'll start at cookies. So cookies, the website is deezcookies.com and that is D-E-E-Z cookies.com. Yes, I know it sounds like something else. It's intentional, but my close friends and family call me D and that's the reason for the name of the business. Um, my Instagram handle is little old D. So little O-L-E D-E-E. Uh, the business's Instagram handle is D's Cookies Seabus because it's based in Columbus. Uh, the breastfeeding group's Instagram handle is Black Lactation Circle. Uh, my website is on the neutral ground.com. My Facebook page for the website is On the Neutral Ground with Khadijah Adams. Uh, that's K is in Kilo, H is in Hotel, A is in Alpha, D is in Delta, I is in India, J is in Jeep, A is in Alpha. Just pause, run it back, listen again. Um, and the handle on Facebook for the business is the same as the Instagram. I think, I think, I think it's all of it. Fantastic. And I will put all of these things in the show notes just in case you don't want to, you know, run it back. Um, but <laughs> but I will make sure that people have ways to contact you and and connect with the business and, and order cookies because they yeah. should order cookies. They taste um, good. Khadija, this has been um, an absolute joy. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and tell me about your business and your work and, and all the ways that you're teaching and creating and, and loving people through, through milk and cookies, as you said. So thank you so much. I'm honored. Thank you for the invitation. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church, and the Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.